Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. A lot of people have been asking if there are more opportunities to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards. Well, there are. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is December 20th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and have a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head on over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Design does make a difference. It's hip to make squares. Make cool shit, get paid. Business bleak to business leak. Hey there, and welcome back. If you remember those amazing Bloomberg Business Week covers from back in the day, or have seen design in the New York Times that made you pause, chances are it was designed by Tracy Ma. Our next guest is one of the most impactful graphic designers out there today, and is currently a designer for the New York Times style section. Tracy would never say this, but her incredible aesthetic combined with the global scale of the Times means her work not only informs, but defines a lot of the visual world we live in today. I wouldn't normally tell you to pause our podcast, but for this week's episode, if you are unfamiliar with Tracy's work and find yourself in a spot with some internet access, take a second while I'm reading this intro, go to our show notes where you'll find links to some of the work we discuss. Pretty great, right? We started off talking about her early exploration into the world of design with MySQL. In a meeting with Taylor Lorenz, our reporter who just joined the Styles desk, and she was saying how she had missed out on the internet of the 2000s because she was so laser focused on being the most popular person in school. And at the time, she thought the internet was for losers and she stayed away from it like the plague. And I thought that that was so very true. And like the internet was definitely a different place back then when I sort of dabbled in it as a young tween and teen. And I was definitely in a loser category, and I doubled down on it. And the internet was a really great place for that. And so, you know, like, the internet of me being a kid was GeoCities, like, web rings, forums, MySpace, Anga, and for me especially, like, DeviantArt. So that was sort of my foray into design for the internet. I was just constantly kind of, like, making fan art based on my MMORPG characters and like building little web rings and like hosting my own forums on like MySQL. On MySQL. Yeah, MySQL. Yeah. That's, that's, that's deep dork right there. Yeah. Deep dork. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the high school thing though, because that's sort of one of the early jokes I think of like the internet was that it was like for people who weren't popular in high school, that it's like it it suddenly like became the place where like all the people who weren't popular but were smart and like had like weird passions 
found each other and like ended up being yeah popular or or even not even smart just kind of <laughs> <laughs> like uh, being able to kind of gather and have a different sort of social life like mm. for me it was kind of like reprise from like the constant high school pressures or like middle school pressures and where did you grow up in toronto canada in okay. a little area called north york okay yeah interesting when did you sort of decide if you will that question of like when did you decide you wanted to be a designer I mean, if you were like in SQL forums, it sounded like you were certainly technical at a very early age, I would imagine. I wanted to be technical, but it got a little too complicated for me. And then, you know, I went to a very well-funded public middle school and high school that had like a really, really thriving arts program. So I was also, you know, like I was going home and dabbling with like GeoCities. But at, in school, I was learning how to be a mime and like classical piano. So, you mm. know, and like we definitely had a thorough like arts education and I majored in visual arts and our teacher at the time was so deeply obsessed with modernism and like showed us um, a lot of postmodernism stuff and like made us write this big essay on postmodernism when we were all just sort of like 14, 15 and showed us kind of like Colors Magazine from Tipper Common and like in ninth grade. So like Colors I think- Magazine, that was the one that was like it was like part of a brand, right? What was the brand? Yeah, was Benetton. Benetton, that's yeah. right. Sorry, it's been, it's been a while since. That was a great magazine. Yeah, it was. And so I was like, I guess like those kids in my program were all quite haughty. Like they kept being encouraged in their like artistic talents in a way that, you know, other kids who didn't go to like magnet art schools wouldn't. And so I think it was just natural for me to be like, graphic design is a career. Look at this magazine. Like it, was, like mm. I was being shown these things and other kids were being shown like professional dancers and I ended up being like in the National Ballet of Canada. Like, so it was like a school that really nurtured the arts, I guess. What was your first, you know, big graphic design job, if you will, or the one that you think of as your first job? I interned in a denim company in Hong Kong between second and third year college. So that was pretty fun. I got to kind of figure out how graphic design could exist in like the fashion world, learn, you know, technical terms like tech packs and stuff. So and then I sort of, you know, obviously tried a bunch of different stuff. I'm an editorial now, but I, I just like it opened me up to kind of different avenues of graphic design. What was the impact of moving from Toronto to uh, Hong Kong on your aesthetic or oh. even on your sort of how you started to think about things because yeah. they're visually very different places, yeah. right? I was actually born in Hong Kong and immigrated to Toronto when I was eight. So okay. moving between those two cultures were kind of normal to me. And I guess I never really quite felt like I fit into either. And that's why the internet was like pretty cool for me at the time because I never really felt like I fit in to specific places. So, you know, like Hong Kong obviously has like a much more vibrant kind of like popular culture, like the music and the film offerings mm. was something that tied me to that culture when I was living in Toronto and surrounded by kind of like snowy landscapes and vast flat lands, quite visually different. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, even though Toronto is like a city, you think of Hong Kong as like way more urban, I guess, right? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's why, you know, moving to New York was quite natural for me. And I, I live in Manhattan now, and a lot of people ask me why why I would choose to 
live in like busier parts of the city and and not the boroughs and i guess you know it it just feels kind of like home to me like hong kong is very much mm. like this so tell me about you eventually took on this job at bloomberg mm-hmm. and i you know i think graphic designers out there are probably a, a lot of them and you know just internet people in general are familiar with your work and especially those covers which became sort of like what you know talked about mm-hmm. and shared a lot and sort of a definitely a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were designing print. Mm-hmm. Were yeah. you, so I guess I have a bunch of questions about that, but one of them is just generally about that role, but were you also doing stuff for the web at the same time? Or were we, I mean, it just seems like doing one, it was a weekly magazine, right? Mm-hmm. So like a cover a week seems to me like that's a lot of work, but maybe you did that in like four hours. I don't know. Yeah. Um, covers could range from four hours to three days, but I didn't do them once a week. I would help out on most of them kind of give feedback and stuff, but, you know. You weren't uh, the only person responsible yeah, for them, right? that's right. The team was quite large. <clears throat> um, and I think, like, that's something that I think was quite remarkable. The kind of workplace of, I think, like 40 people were sort of organized around a single product. And, you know, there's like a rush of camaraderie that comes with that. You know, the way that you consume the web these days in a very kind of like fragmented way, you know, has parallels to how the web is extruded and produced. Like you kind of glom together for rapid short projects with random people and then the random projects could be big and small and they go up and they're consumed in little like chunks. But, you know, producing a single thing that someone would spend an hour or two, you know, looking at and like focusing on and paying attention to took that you know, it, it changed the way that that office was structured and how we worked with one another. That is kind of like the main difference when I think about these two big media type jobs mm. is the kind of team that you get to kind of feel like a rush of like a <laughs> like a big family all producing one thing. They're like a big dinner party versus right. like little almonds and olives and stuff. Were you making stuff for the web at Bloomberg too? No, uh, I would kind of give feedback on certain things when I was asked, but I wasn't in the matrix itself. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you really focused on print. Mm-hmm. And did you like that? Yeah, I did like that a lot. I mean, I was there for five years. All I did was lay out, lay out, lay out all the time. And what, and what years is that about? 2011 to okay. 2016. Did you ever feel like at that time, because that's like a, at some level, that's like a big, that's like a hot digital time, if you will, that's right? right, yeah. Did you ever feel like, oh my God, I'm like doing print? Because I mean, I could, I know that I think that would be a natural thing to mm-hmm. sort of be worried about, like, whether you're doing the thing in mm-hmm. the future or whatever. Yeah. I was definitely, like, very interested in the kind of interactivity of the web that could, you know, you're interfacing with readers directly versus producing a product that they will pick up later and mm. take with them. So there was that aspect of design that I was kind of, like, looking at from a distance. And tell me a little bit about your time at Bloomberg. Um, is that sort of your, is that a first New York job? Yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah. you like, you're, you moved to New York, you're at like Bloomberg, mm-hmm. which is, you know, literally as New York. I mean, yeah. he was the mayor of the city, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a storied place, mm-hmm. you know, that's like this big technology company on some level. Mm-hmm. It's also an editorial company. My recollection, I mean, I have to admit that I, it's not like I followed the covers of Bloomberg Business Week that much before, but it definitely stands out as 
those covers in that time that you were there as being like different than how we think of Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. You know, there it was just like bolder. I don't want to say controversial because it's not necessarily that, but there just was like a boldness to it and like a point of view to it that you just didn't think of and of Bloomberg as much where you think more of a sort of like conservative straight laced, like, you know, we'll give you the business news, you know, and you'll be able yeah. to get it, that kind of thing. Well, what do people think of it there? Do they like love it because it got so much attention or was it? Well, that's the thing. I think when I joined, people didn't really pay that much attention to it. It was kind of like the mayor bid on it when it was for sale. It got sucked into this much larger ecosystem. The publisher, Norm Perman and Josh Terengel, the editor, they wanted a different type of business magazine. They didn't want a thing that looked like any other business magazines. And I, I very much felt that when I was there, the company Bloomberg didn't pay that much attention to it. Yeah. And I think that's when all that creativity was happening because it was just sort of not being looked at by mm. people. As the years, you know, went by and like it started getting all this attention, the company itself felt like, at least from my point of view, like suddenly, oh, like there's this kind of thing, cool thing happening. And like suddenly, you know, there's like suits descending and you start getting notes on covers and before nobody was ever giving yeah, you yeah. exactly yeah so what was that like to go from sort of not you know not noticed to noticed i mean the outside yeah. world was noticing but internally did did yeah. uh did that pitch you against them kind of so to speak or hmm i mean it was definitely a political place it's set in its own ways. There's clearly that kind of tension between people who are producing stuff for the terminal, which is their main source of revenue, and people who are producing stuff outside of that, like the web and printed magazines. And they were all like like little little pockets. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. So it was just kind of interesting for me to see. I never personally needed to like produce or manage up, and but I learned what that could look like, I guess, from mm. watching you know, my managers do that. I guess, I mean, I guess I'm asking about it because the impression one gets looking at that work from that time is just like a creative, a group of creative people that are just like, you know, it's like in fifth gear mm -hmm. humming. <laughs> like it just, you know, it's just like so many mm -hmm. really well-realized pieces mm -hmm. over such amount of time that you're like, whoever's doing that stuff together is just really like, vibing with each other mm -hmm. or getting together you know really it's just like yeah. you just don't get that kind of consistency yeah unless people are really digging in having a good time together but then yeah. when i think oh but it's at bloomberg and i'm like this i don't understand how that like how does that happen you know not that there's anything wrong with bloomberg <laughs> but it's just not the type of place where you expect to have that kind of like yeah feeling i mean uh, the, i don't know if you've been in the building i have yeah like it's yeah, i mean that's, it's, I, that's part of what i mean too right it's very like a lot of tech fests yeah. um now and but I don't know. Like I, the vibe was like kind of clubby, right? Like there's a bunch of free snacks. There's like screens buzzing around you. And I think like the vibe certainly helped create, you know, like more like loose environment to bounce ideas off mm. of one another. But I would kind of like attribute that credit to the editor at the time who like knew that like in order for this type of environment, like creative environment to exist, he needed to kind of carve out space for that. You know, recognizing that was not on me or anyone who like thrived in that environment, but like right. kind of like from the management point. Right, of they gave you the space to do that. Yeah. So you're you're designing print mm -hmm. and then you go to the Times. 
that's a big shift, mm-hmm. right? Where you tell me about that a bit, how that happened, and you know, you're thinking about designing for the web and for phones and for tablets and all these different places that your work now lives mm-hmm. versus what you were doing at Bloomberg. Yeah. So the Bloomberg stuff, because it didn't have the immediate like eyeballs, you know, critiquing it, it sort of at the time as internet trolls were gaining momentum, <laughs> like it sort of was shielded away from that a little bit because, you know, you can't press comment on a printed thing. So, you know, we were able to kind of design stuff without kind of immediate opinions that would swell around any creative endeavor. So that was a really great place to just sort of be in a room with other creatives and just sort of do things that we wanted to see Mm. ourselves. Like a very safe, insulated. Yeah. In terms of like fostering you know, like making yourselves be able to feel comfortable coming up with ideas and being vulnerable and all that stuff and not necessarily having to project every single potential comment somebody might have based on all the millions that you had the time before. Right, right. And we do like occasionally get faxes that says, this is no longer a business magazine. This is a comic book. Like it was (laughs) like the fax machine like was semi close to me at the time. And you just hear it going, and there's like um, something about the that comes on a fax machine where you're like, oh, this is okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a long time subscriber. Right. To... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So when you went to the Times, then you sort of like leave that behind, and mm-hmm. now you're really in the like. I mean, I don't know what other than like doing brand or doing design for Twitter or something. I don't know yeah. where else you could be more in the yeah thick of it. Yeah, for sure, in the teak of it. <laughs> I think it's inter- It's definitely an important experience to have, and I I'm glad. You know, a minute to. Well, so tell me about uh, yeah. the transition a little bit. So between those two big media companies, I worked at a startup that was funded by Ev Williams, and also worked for myself. Started a small business, working for clients like Google, and just kind of like seeing what's out there a little bit. And occasionally, we'd get you know commissioned for editorial articles and stuff like that and kind of realizing that I really miss the pace of publishing and the way that you don't have to work on like a deck for like five months and then it just being an internal pitch deck Mm. and just kind of like finishing something quick and like and then it's and then it is seen for a short amount of time right so there's that aspect to right to digital publishing tell me about the early days at the times Mm -hmm. when you first started there what are some of the projects you remember working on early on? So the early projects include the kind of like Royal Wedding FAQ and also a call out for entries from college students that ask them to describe their experiences navigating issues around consent on campus. Mm. Um, so two very different, yeah. to- like totally very different stories. And those were my first two projects. Um, wow. So I'm just, and we'll link to the, in the notes to some of those, the Royal Wedding one, I definitely remember there for people just still trying to describe and you do a better job of correcting me if I don't do a good job, but you have sort of like a photo of the couple and then a lot of, a lot of design around it that kind of gives it this feeling of like a frenzy kind mm-hmm. of thing, or like that it's like that this whole thing is really about the the spectacle of it mm-hmm. rather than it's clear like it's not going to be like a serious mm-hmm. thing about, you know, the process yeah. of them getting married or how they fell in love really. It's going right. to be like about 
right? Right, yeah. How would you describe it? Um, frenzy is a good um, way to describe it because it. I, my only criteria when I went into it is that it had like more than 100 questions or it didn't, it, that it looked very normal to begin with and then you start to interact and you start to scroll and it kind of unfurls into this endless thing. I want it to feel like you'll never get to the end <laughs> of this wonderful love story. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think, you know, that inspiration came from just being in a room with uh, a lot of people who knew that this wedding was coming and were going to be in charge of the stories leading up to it and reporting the actual wedding out. And people, to kind of keep the liveliness of that meeting, started asking, like, silly questions, like dumb questions. And then those ones were the ones that I thought, yeah. you know, like, should actually have a purpose, you know, outside of just having a fun office environment. And also, you know, inspired by all these, you know, insane, I don't know if you're, you've been to a lot of weddings recently, but now they're like these three-day events and they're in the middle of nowhere. And there's always like an FAQ about how to get there right. and all that stuff. And so I just wanted that, but for, you know. As if it was like you were going to go to this thing. and Yeah, right. So one of the things about that and just in general, it seems like is that you know, the, the Times has always had, like, um, you know, it's about all the information that's in the articles kind of feeling to it. And it doesn't not, – not that it was boring. Like, it's always been really great photography. It's, like, really well designed, great typefaces, mm -hmm. you know. So it's, like, always very awesome. But this kind of, um, like, pop or, like, irreverent part or, mm -hmm. like, pastiche kind of thing or whatever mm -hmm. that some of your stuff brings, brings to it is, mm -hmm. like a, is, like, a new thing to the Times, I think. At least yeah. from a reader perspective. Yeah. And maybe the maybe like the Sunday magazine sometimes had some of that oh, or sure. some of these other things did. But just, you know, like if you just take the volume of like 100 years of New York Times papers or whatever, there's like not a lot of that in there. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's like kind of a part of mm – -hmm. it's kind of a part of the Times now, which is really cool. Yeah, Was yeah. it hard to – like that just seems like at a place like that, that would be hard to get people to go along with. Or did they just like it so much they, were, they went with it? I think – there's definitely a unspoken guideline. Um, I think my boss keeps using the word Timesian. And then at first I was like, I don't know what that means. Please, I'm not trying to be difficult. Right. <laughs> um, you know, when I would kind of get into these like roundabout heated debates about issues surrounding pastiche really because, you know, like the Times doesn't want to lose its edge of authority and that they've feel that, you know, typeface Cheltenham represents something. And it truly does. I, I think I had like a meeting with BuzzFeed one time and they did an internal survey. They just like set a random article in different type typefaces and asked kind of like carte blanche to a bunch of people, like which one they would trust the most. And they, pe people tended to pick the one set in Cheltenham. Right. And so like they know what that typeface does to people and they want to keep what that means very pure. Right. And so I think that helps, you know, me to have a framework around how I think about designing for the times. Just because during the time when I was working for myself, having no, none of that was actually kind of overwhelming because then you can go so far into pastiche. At least with the magazine, you, you had that ed edge <laughs> a right. little bit. Right, right. Like, uh, and so, you know jumping from platform to platform, like 
video and like having kind of like a more platform agnostic way of designing, having the kind of like Times brand help guide, it is actually quite useful. Yeah, because I mean, it's sort of, I mean, all these like words are even just directly derivative of like the word print, like imprimatur and like the slogan of like all the news that's fit to print and mm -hmm. stuff. These sort of all do come down to like we've, our authority mm -hmm. has given this thing meaning and mm -hmm. a lot of that meaning is conveyed through through visual design. Mm -hmm. right? And some of it's like a virtuous cycle that like the more and more you can use the same type of visual design information that's important and authoritative, the more and more authoritative that visual design becomes. Yeah. So when you're doing something like the Royal Wedding or like the, from the summer, the, um, all the, the all, all the hot takes. Yeah. yeah. How do you, you know, like tell, what's your thought process between like where, like how you, you still have that, but mm -hmm. you take it somewhere where you would expect like something about hot takes to go, you know? Yeah. So with the Royal Wedding, it's actually a little bit clearer because it's not really the wrapper that is so different, right? It's still kind of like black typeface on the white thing and it's these other elements like suddenly there's a squirrel and he <laughs> runs you back up the page like those are just kind of things contained within a quite vanilla wrapper mm. and the questions themselves and the answer themselves are about facts right and so that piece actually is quite on brand mm. like because we're not like spinning tales or opinions or lies like using that typeface so mm. even though you know you could get very OCD with a fact which right. is kind of like the feeling that I wanted like just getting really in a tight little coil inside a wormhole I, I felt like that piece was still pretty on brand for the times and then for the hot takes I guess we set out using kind of visuals like the running hot dog to kind of like get at the feeling of exaggeration is happening and then a kind of like a preface that says like these are opinions about the summer and so yeah it was still it's not like pastiche there was one project in particular was Nellie Bowles on the trend that men are very hyper aware of their sperm count and you know, the kind of subculture of men who go through this <laughs> thought process and the kind of tools that are now available to help them. And I wanted to turn that page into like, like Infowarsy, mm -hmm. like I just kind of get at the paranoia. And I, that, that was kind of like, I touched upon a threshold that was like not allowed. That's Are like you, the vulnerability of the men who feel that way and how they're, they can be. Is that what you mean by the infra? The... I think there's multi-layers to this. The art itself, I, I used a lot of stock images of crying men. And, and then that was funny. And the Times didn't want to make fun of these men, like even in an illustrative setting. Mm. And more importantly, I found out that like this type of approach needs to be contained within a rectangle, and then that is then wrapped by a kind of like a Times voice, which is like a headline in Cheltenham. And then you can have like an illustration right? Um, that is separate from that. So there's that, there's always that layer. Yeah. Um, you think you're at the edge, but there's actually like a thin kind of uh -huh. Times yeah. voice around everything. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Do you, and do you think that's like, does that, is it meaningful? Do you think that works? You know, my work 
plays with the way that images interact with words in the most basic sense of it and kind of not being able to change that tone of voice ever because, you know, the time's voice is set, I think, you know, changes the way I am designing. It's interesting. It's not bad or good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me about... How much are you working with, like, the writers of the piece or is it with the editors? And, like, who, you know, from a broad perspective, like, mm-hmm. where is the collaboration that's fruitful taking place? Is it from, like, the writer telling you what they really think the story is about? Or, you know, or do you pitch them what you think it could be? Or how does that work? These little projects, big and small, just kind of prop up and they get bur- bursted into the Internet. And I think, you know, it just depends on... Yeah. project with the FAQ, it came from a form that I had in my head and I couldn't convey it even in wireframing it out. It was difficult for writers to kind of envision that. And so it really had to come down to me, you know, editing things, bigger things into smaller things, separating them into as many questions as possible, and then dumping it into the form that I had in my brain for mm-hmm. them to kind of be able to write to it a little mm-hmm. bit. And then other times, I mean, I'm quite fortunate to be working with Corey Sika and, you know, editors who aren't set in kind of like filing 3,000 word opuses on and like, yeah. I mean, you could say like native internet editors or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And especially in the case of Corey, right? It's like yeah, yeah. somebody who kind of yeah. is on some level even created some of what that genre even is. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. Being able to like change, like kind of shape shift using only words, I think is kind of what Corey's quite good at. Tell me a bit of the process, your like your design process, because some of the work I look at and I think like, wow, if you tried this out to make this, it could take even somebody who's really fast, I bet you're like really, really fast. It could still take you like an hour or something. And if you didn't end up liking it, man, that's like an hour wasted. So you must have like a bunch of ways that you cut down on how much all this production time is because some of the stuff you make is like it looks very production intensive hmm. yeah and, um, I, and I don't mean like from a it's like overly cluttered or overproduced or anything I just mean like you know you can't have an appreciation for yeah there's a lot of work <laughs> yeah I think there was more versioning happening when I was designing for print because like uh-huh. you know you're able to design still things at a quicker clip and kind of like because producing for the web takes so much longer I don't know. I'm I'm used to things being not used, right. but it's just like the kind of slower pace and being able to have only three options in the time that I would have 50 options for mm. print, I think is something I'm still trying to round out. Like I, w- I would prefer to have many more options mm. discarded. Do you, do you use code to generate work a lot? I do now, but oh. I'm not very proficient in it. And I tend to design knowing my own capabilities or or like I just try not to come up with some like insane thing that would require like an exasperated coworker Uh who's like a full stack coder or something and then they hate me like I don't want to come up with those type of projects how do you think about where all of this lives right and so Mm -hmm. obviously there's the obvious oh it's on people's phones and it's on desktops but it also lives in lots of other places too yeah probably more and more in the future yeah. Um, do you look at it in seven different size screens? Do you think about it that way? Are you designing different things for different places? Like, how do you think about yeah. how it expresses itself in 
different forms of media. We definitely have to make sure that the work that we produce don't break on different, all the major screen sizes anyway. But I would like to experiment more with, you know, designing something that is only for a mobile screen experience versus something on desktop. And like, again, the kind of digital publishing proficiency of the times lets you do that. There's different classes for different phone screens. And if it's portrait or if it's like retina or something, that's all kind of built into this, these really proficient templates that mm. we have. And I haven't taken full advantage of that yet, mm. but I want to. Do you think about like more that your, your work lives on a phone now more than a larger screen? Is that like, if you were, if I were to make you rank, like how you're visualizing it, is that where you're at? It depends. I wanted to build the hot takes project for the phone, but the road trip project that I just published it looks best on a desktop because they're photographs. Right. Like the kind of rush of, I don't know, the dopamine that you feel when you're opening a big life magazine and there's like big pictures of landscapes and smaller pictures of like close-ups of faces like that. Those are the things that, you know, makes that piece special for me. And so like it, I still produce things for desktop. The other thing is like, you know, we probably go to a lot fewer different websites than we used to, like mm -hmm. maybe in those webring days, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you'd be on this site and this site and this site and you're moving on. Now it's really like, call it three or five or seven or whatever it is for, for people. Like it feels like everything has gotten very consolidated and centralized and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Is that something that you feel is like freeing from a design perspective? I don't, I mean, I think it, the pace of design that is needed, I think is affects my life a little bit more than the different kind of outlets. Because, you know, like I would prefer to just be in a hole and kind of like come up with new visual forms. But I think there's that kind of need for these different platforms to be filled constantly. And so, mm -hmm. you know, being kind of like sort of encouraged to produce things at a faster and faster pace affects my kind of ability to kind of like sit down and make a composition that people quite like. Another way of looking at this is that, you know, I interface with students quite a bit. I just finished a graduate level workshop at MICA and like I see a lot of students Pinteresting, like they have very good like mood boards, really good taste in like what design is at right now but they don't spend the time to actually extrude out work if that makes sense mm -hmm. so you you get a lot of kind of collagey stuff there it's a kind of like stylists mm -hmm. the way that like I don't know it's almost like the opposite of like somebody who's working every single day and maybe doesn't have the luxury of like mood boarding everything but has to just make 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 and mm -hmm. they're like on the other side of that where yeah. It's like the research and the mood board and the feeling and but mm -hmm. never not as much the Yeah. what's the last piece yeah. that gets made. Yeah, but I think like a lot of design now is quite mood board heavy like collage huh. created quickly, you know, nostalgic like pulling things in the 90s, jutting it together fast uh -huh. so you can push it out. Right. And not kind of like, you know, actually figuring out I don't sit sitting down and figuring out mm. like something that people haven't seen before. Right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, I mean, that's definitely something I wanted to ask you about because you teach at Parsons still? I used to. You used to teach at yeah. Parsons. What are some of the other things you learn from, you learn from seeing what students are doing? I guess kind of like the... This workshop that I did with Yotam Hadar, who was like a designer at Pentagram, was focused around versioning, like not resting on a piece and carefully crafting, but kind of like coming up with as many ideas around a thing as possible. Like as soon as you think something has legs, kind of put it aside and start again and kind of like, you know, go try to approach it from as many ways as possible. And I, I think like it was surprising to see that not many students work in that way, even though that is kind of like, I guess for Yotam and I, that is kind of the bread and butter of working as a designer these days is just extruding as many options as possible. Like I think for students, that's still kind of not. Right. Yeah. And you think it's because they haven't had the demands of needing to make so much so fast put on them yet? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, for the most part, college projects are still focused around, like, semester one, we'll have project A and B, and then they have, like, weeks and weeks to craft this one thing. And so they're very product, end product, like, focused, like, I'm going to make a book and, like, everything about that book, whereas, you know, like, they're not really thinking about how design is consumed these days, which is like extremely fragmented. And yeah. Mm. How do you think we'll look back on like this time in design? There are a few major, I think, design trends happening. One of them is called colloquially corporate Matisse. I don't know. Okay. You've heard of this. I haven't, but it sounds intriguing. It, it's just like all the kind of like tech-ish clean sans serif with like flat Matisse like shapes uh-huh. and those Matisse like colors and they're all for kind of like startup-y new toothbrushes and right. that is one canon that I think is like defining our visual time right now. Tracy Ma, thanks for yeah. joining us on the Webby Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Tracy for stopping by the studio. Tracy's work is incredibly interesting and smart. Be sure to check out her website, tracyma.com, to learn more. As always, you can reach me on social at dmdlikes. If you like the Webby podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really like it and want to go to the extra mile, leave us a review. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. That's webbyawards.com or on social platforms at The Webby Awards. 
Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the person who always had their homework done. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.